Today's scripture comes from John chapter 5, verses 2 through 15. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Good morning. My name is Gene and I'm one of the pastors at Exilic. And again, welcome to our worship service. For the past few weeks, we've been going through a sermon series called The Great Questioner, When Jesus Questions Us. I imagine that in 2020, we've been asking God a lot of questions. Almost every day I read the news and I ask myself and I ask God, what's going on? My prayers have been filled with questions to God. What are you doing? Why aren't you doing something? Why aren't you doing more? When is this pandemic going to end? How long will you allow injustice to flourish? How is this economy going to recover? What if New York City never recovers? And honestly, for all the questions I've asked God, very few of them have been answered. Jesus was asked many questions throughout his ministry, but for all the questions he was asked, he answered fewer than 10 of them. But what Jesus does again and again is ask questions of his own. In the Gospels, no fewer than 307 questions are asked by Jesus. And he's very intentional with his questions. They aren't common and unremarkable questions like, do you know what time it is? Uh, how about that game last night? Can you believe this weather? No. Jesus asks profound questions that are designed to challenge, convict, and change the person he is questioning. We come to the final sermon in the series today, and today's question is found in John 5. 
And before we talk about the question itself, I, I want to set the scene so that we can better understand the question in context. So on the Jewish calendar, there were three major religious feasts that Jews celebrated by making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. The Feast of Booths, Passover, and Pentecost. And it isn't clear which feast this was, but Jesus goes to Jerusalem to observe the holiday. The city is very crowded and busy, as you would imagine. Now, if you were well off during this time, you'd find the Jerusalem equivalent of the Four Seasons. If you weren't as wealthy, but lucky enough to have relatives in town, you'd stay with them. But even for the poor, rabbinic tradition tells us that especially during this feast, hospitality was emphasized and even required. So historians tell us that people during these feasts, they opened their homes to those in need, for the most part. John here describes by the sheep gate a pool called Bethesda, where people gathered. And these people most likely would not be welcomed into any homes because it would be too much of a burden for the hosts. These were the lowest of the low. A multitude, John tells us, a multitude of invalids, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And there was this widely held belief that this pool had mystical qualities that would miraculously heal the first person to enter it when the water suddenly began to stir. Now, I'm not sure whether or not people were actually healed by the pool, but everybody there believed it to be true. So you can imagine what the scene must have been like. Hundreds of people suffering a gamut of afflictions, which would prevent them from being functional members of society. These people, they, they wouldn't be gainfully employed. Uh, they would survive entirely on the pity of others. It was a very difficult, a often lonely existence. They would not be able to worship in the temple, but uh, would be the ones begging for money at the temple gates, like we see in Acts chapter 3. They'd likely have little to no community, as they would have been this tremendous burden to those closest to them. If you were to visit Jerusalem during one of the feasts, this would be the last place you would want to visit. Imagine the smells, unwashed bodies, human waste, open sores on atrophied limbs. And all you would hear is the moans of the sick or angry voices fighting to get an ideal vantage point to be the first one into the pool. And I think more than the sights, the sounds, the smells, what would be the most noticeable thing would be the tension thick in the air. Every person there has one sole objective. As soon as there is a hint of movement in the water, there is a chaotic mad scramble to be the first person in the pool at all costs. Can you imagine the fighting, 
the trampling, pulling hair, biting, clawing out of sheer desperation. Because blink and you miss it. And you don't know when the waters might move. I can imagine countless false alarms. So your entire day has to be spent there in that environment. All of your attention fixed on trying to get in first. The place is packed. It's so crowded, and because everyone is so focused on the pool, Jesus is able to drop in. He heals a paralyzed man miraculously, and then he leaves without drawing any attention to himself. Now, obviously, this is early on in Jesus' ministry, before he was known as a miraculous healer. Otherwise, he would have been mobbed. Jesus surveys the scene. And he approaches a man who has been paralyzed for 38 years. Jesus comes to him and asks him the question that we'll be looking at today. Do you want to be healed? And if you think about it, this is a strange question for Jesus to ask him. My six-year-old son, Andy, started a soccer clinic this week that my town offers. And because we're now homeschooling Andy, it was so great watching him run around with other first graders on the soccer field. And as I was watching him run around, I noticed that one of the kids only had one arm. So when we got home, I made sure to have a conversation with Andy about how to treat people who might be different from you, how they might feel if you point out or make fun of their differences. Now, if Andy were to go up to his new friend today at soccer and ask him this question that Jesus asks the paralyzed man, I would be mortified. Do you want to be healed? Do you want a second arm? You don't ask that. You don't ask, ask someone who's overweight if they want to be skinny. You don't go up to a blind person and say, hey, do you wish you could see? Imagine hearing this from Jesus after you've been in this condition for 38 years. What, what do you think? What do you think, Jesus? What do you think I'm doing here? That's kind of rude, isn't it? Isn't this question offensive? Is Jesus being insensitive or tone deaf here? I don't think so. What Jesus is doing here is he is correcting this man's understanding of healing. As soon as Jesus asks this question, the man's immediate response is, I can't get into the pool. No one will help me into the pool. His understanding of healing and Jesus' understanding of healing are very different. Do you want to be healed? What Jesus is really asking is, what do you think healing is? Is it in the uncertain mysticism of that pool? Is it where everyone else believes healing is? Or is it in me? This man needs to hear this question because his understanding of healing is mistaken in two huge ways. 
first, he thinks that his biggest problem is his physical condition. And second, he thinks his only hope is in the prescriptions of this world apart from Jesus. And that's why I think this question is equally as appropriate for us. Because for me, although I haven't been physically disabled for 38 years, I've been far more broken my whole life until I met the one who could truly heal me. And still, my heart continues to chase the prescriptions of this world. So as we look at this question now, I hope that we can come to learn three things about Jesus's healing. First, healing is far deeper than we think. Second, healing is far harder than we think. And finally, healing is far better than we think. It's deeper, harder, and better. So first, <clears throat> Jesus' healing is far deeper than we understand it to be. For the man, his biggest problem was obvious to him. It was clearly his disability. For him, physical healing would solve all of life's problems. He would be able to earn an income. He would be able to join and worship in the temple. He could hang out with friends, date, start a family. If I could just be healed, my life would be complete. But Jesus's question, it underscores the flaw in that logic. Look at what Jesus tells the man later after his healing in verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus tells the man that although he is healed physically, sin points to a worse condition than disability. There is a deeper reality than what this man understands, a deeper brokenness. What Jesus is telling him is that his biggest problem was not his disability, but that his biggest problem was his sin. When Jesus asks him, do you want to be healed? He's asking him if he wants to be truly and completely healed, not just physically. Do you want the true and spiritual healing that I can bring? And this is a question that Jesus also asks of us. What are the things in your life that you perceive as your biggest problems? Is it your career or your family? What brings you the most anxiety and grief? Is it COVID, injustice, this election? What are you most dissatisfied with in your life? Is it your income? Is it your singleness, your marriage? Whatever your answers are, if the answer isn't your sin, then you may need to reconsider your own condition. And where do we look for healing? What are our pools? When Jesus asks us the question of healing, do our eyes immediately gravitate towards the pools of money, beauty, relationships, comfort, pleasure, etc.? 
Jesus is standing in front of this man as the healer of the world, but the man only sees in Jesus someone who might help him get into the pool. Is that how we sometimes view and treat Jesus? Is Jesus someone who will help us get what we really want? Is he someone we go to for help to get into our pools? When Jesus asks you, do you want to be healed? Is your answer yes, but especially in these areas of my life? Tim Keller often shares a story of the time he counseled a high school student. And she said to him, Jesus is great and salvation is great, but why can't I get a date? Obviously, Jesus and salvation were not so great for her. Are they for you? Is Jesus so great for you that you don't need anything else to ultimately fulfill you? Do you desperately need Jesus? Or is he someone whose help you can really do without? I want to encourage you to take an honest assessment of your spiritual condition apart from Jesus. Because the healing that he brings and the healing that you need is far deeper than you realize. The next point for us to consider is that Jesus' healing is much harder and more uncomfortable than we think. Now, on the one hand, this man didn't have to lift a finger to be healed. But Jesus could have just told the man, get up and walk. But he inserts into his healing command, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And Jesus intentionally does this because he knows that it is the Sabbath. And by Jewish custom and rabbinic law, carrying your mat was not allowed on the Sabbath. This man would stand out like a sore thumb. For 38 years, this man must have idolized acceptance and community. And Jesus, rather than simply giving this man what he's waited 38 years for, he calls him into immediate conflict with religious authorities and the broader community. And what we learn from this is that following Jesus will make cultural conflict inevitable. Being a Christian will mean being distinct from the broader culture. You will stand out. People will not like you. People will even hate you. Jesus tells his disciples later in the book of John, if the world hated me, guess what? It'll hate you too. You will be reviled and persecuted for your faith. You will be thought less of. You'll be laughed at. You will not fit in. Now, this doesn't mean that we should be anti-cultural or just reactionary against all culture, but it means... Obeying Jesus in spite of what people will say or think about you. So when Jesus asks, do you want to be healed? He's asking, do you want to be healed even if it means carrying your bed on the Sabbath? Do you want to be healed even if it means losing friends? 
being passed over for promotions, being ridiculed on social media. Do you want to be healed even if it means the world will hate you for it? Friends, we're, we're seeing in our current social and political moment, tribalism on a scale that we haven't seen in recent history. Everything seems to be politicized. Every issue, every event is immediately dissected and viewed through a political lens. In a culture of, of such stark duality, it should be impossible for Christians to fit in neatly without any conflict into either of the two camps. And that's not to say that Christians should not engage politically, but it means that there are going to be times when your Christian identity is going to be at odds with the political stances of either, both parties. Starting next week, we're, we're going to do a sermon series on faith and politics, and we'll explore this more in depth. So please join us for that. But let me say now, if you're a Christian, and if you have no ideological conflicts with your political party, then maybe that's an indication that your political affiliation might be more important to you than your Christian identity. In many ways, you should be too liberal for your conservative friends and too conservative for your liberal friends. Are you willing to risk relationships and reputation in following Jesus? An important question to ask ourselves is this, what is the bed that Jesus might be commanding me to carry on this Sabbath? Where might conflict arise in my life if I choose to live without compromising my faith? Jesus' healing, it will be harder for us than we think. But you know what? It will be much, much greater than anything that we can imagine. So two things I want to mention here. First, this healing is very special. Jesus doesn't interact with anyone else here. This man is the only recipient of healing at the pool. Hundreds of invalids, all there in need of healing. Jesus comes and heals one man. And he could have healed all of them. Now, this will rub people the wrong way the more they think about it. Why doesn't Jesus here heal everyone when he can? Why does just this man receive the healing? And apply this universally. Why doesn't Jesus save every single person when he can? Now, because we're not God, we will never really know why. But what do I know? I know this. I'm healed. I'm saved. So many people in this world do not know Jesus. So many people in this world do not have the hope and the life that he brings, but I do. And not because I'm smarter, not because I'm morally superior to anybody, but out of sheer grace, God has rescued me 
when he did not have to at all. Friends, if you are a Christian, your salvation is so special. You are the recipient of an amazing grace. You have won the cosmic lottery of salvation. Do not take your healing for granted. When we consider this, we can't say what the teenager said to Tim Keller. We can't say, thanks God for salvation, but what about that promotion? Where are we at on my relationship? The profundity of our salvation, it should perpetually astound us. We should never get over how amazing it is that we are healed. And that's the beauty of the gospel. This man is healed before he lifts a finger. His healing is not contingent on anything that he does. Even the command to carry his bed, it happens after he's already healed. There's absolutely no works component to the gospel. There's nothing that we contribute to our healing. Jesus' healing, it's not about working or earning or performing or proving, but it's about rest. And that's the main point of this passage, the the rest that Jesus brings. It's no accident that Jesus does this on the Sabbath. While all the able-bodied people are worshiping God in the temple, at this pool, there is no rest. No one here is relaxed. No pina coladas in the pool cabana. Everyone here is desperate for healing. They're obsessed with the pool. Everyone is on edge. At the slightest noise or movement, people are clawing to get into the pool. But not this man once he's healed. Imagine the freedom he feels. No longer bound to the pool. He's free to walk around. He's free to leave. He doesn't need the pool. What a freedom that is. When the rest of the world is desperately seeking to fix their brokenness by any means necessary, pushing, shoving, fighting one another to get ahead, those who are healed by Jesus can walk above it all, unbound to any false promises or hopes of salvation. When your coworkers, when they're stabbing each other in the back to advance their careers, you don't have that same impulse and need because you have something much better than anything the corporate ladder can provide. When so many in this world are numbing their pains by abusing alcohol, drugs, and sex, your deepest wounds are treated by the great physician Jesus himself. When the political world is devolving into a tribalistic fight to death, we can exhibit a supernatural peace and collectedness that comes from trusting in the King of Kings. When so many victims of injustice despair and they lash out because there continues to be no justice, we can stand for justice in hope that evil will not prevail. It will not have the final word. 
And we don't just blindly rest. The reason we can rest is that Jesus is not resting, but working. Verse 16 and 17. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Jesus calls us to rest in him because he will work for us to the end. Jesus lives the perfect life that we failed to live, and he goes to the cross to die the death that we all deserve to die. He does it all. The good shepherd accomplishes everything for his sheep. We rest because he didn't. And this healing is far greater than anything we could ever hope for. And it's, it's, it's so good. Our, our salvation is so good that we can't keep it to ourselves. God calls us to share our hope, the good news, with others. So even as we hear Jesus, the great questioner, asking us the question, do you want to be healed? Let us also ask those around us, those to the ends of the earth who are hurting and lost. Let's ask them, not rudely, not arrogantly, but let us humbly and passionately point them to the great questioner. And even as we continue to bring our own questions to God, let us see Jesus as the answer to all of our questions. I, I want to end with a quote from C.S. Lewis to close out this sermon series. Until we have faces, he says this, I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You are yourself the answer. Before your face, questions die away. What other answer would suffice? Will you pray with me now?